This is our last week of our Church in the Wild series on the book of Acts. If you are new with this, what we have been doing for a number of months now has been just doing a slow walk through the book of Acts and just looking at what was taking place. And here's been the thesis that we've been driving at the whole time is that as the people of God, we are learning how the Spirit of God works in us and through us to advance his kingdom. And that's what we've been driving after this entire series, is wanting to see the Spirit of God work in us and through us, just like he did in the book of Acts. So as we wrap up this series today, this is not going to be like a summary message of all the different messages combined into one. Really what we're going to be doing is, if you were with us last week, you know that I talked out of Acts 19. So you may be thinking, how are we wrapping up the whole book of Acts when Acts is 28 chapters? How are, we, how are you going to preach on 20 through 28 today? And as I've been saying, what is happening in chapters 20 through 28 is a story is being told. And there's a common theme happening throughout this story. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pull one of the most prevalent themes from that story that's being told in these chapters today. See, here's some big things that are happening in chapters 20 through 28 in the book of Acts is that the message of Jesus is spreading and it's being, and churches are being established in more and more cities. You see that happening in these chapters. One of the key ways that it's happening is through Paul and his partners as he's going on his missionary journeys. But maybe the most obvious thing that's happening in these chapters is that the church is taking ground even in the midst of incredible trial. In famine, in persecution, lack of resources, threat of arrest, actual arrest, the church is moving forward. Another way to say it is that the church is prevailing. For us to prevail, it means that we would be victorious against the forces that come against us because we have access to a greater power than the forces that can come against us. This whole thought of what it means to prevail comes from a Greek word. I've talked about it uh, the last couple weeks, and I've pronounced it different each week. <laughs> this word is katashuo. I don't know what I said last week, but <laughs> that's what it means this week. That's that word. This word is used twice by Jesus in the New Testament. It's the only time it's used. And, and what it means is that, that we would be a prevailing people, a victorious people against the forces that come against us, no matter what, because the power in us is greater than any force that can come against us. Kadeshua. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said it this way. He said, speaking as a prophetic declaration over the church, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome against it. That is the word right there. The gate, it will not prevail against it, meaning the church is called to be a declarative, prevailing, victorious people. That's Jesus' declaration over us. 
He then says in Luke chapter 21, this is Jesus is not making a prophetic declaration about the church this time. What he's doing is he's speaking to us and he's saying, hey, here is how you're going to prevail when the world and culture gets really overwhelming and gets really difficult. Here's how you will overcome. He says, be careful or your hearts, pay attention to that, our hearts will be weighted down. If you want to know the direction your life is headed, check where your heart is. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. You know, we read that and, and some of us, we, we shoot over carousing because we're not sure what it means. We shoot over drunkenness because we're like, I don't, that's not me. And then it hits anxieties of life and you're like, hmm, I don't like the Bible right now. It, it hit a little too close to home. It says, and that day will suddenly come on you like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. You're not exempt. It's coming to everybody. The, the, the troubles and trials of life. So be on watch and pray that you will be able to escape. There's that word again. Katashuo. All that might be able, all that might happen, and you will be able to stand before the Son of Man. So here's what we've been doing. The last few weeks, we've been talking about how we as a people, we as a church, we as Antioch Austin prevail right now. We, we've been in this series, and the whole point of the series is that as the people of God, we would learn how the Spirit of God is working in and through us to advance His kingdom. So we, as Antioch Austin, are learning what does it mean for us to prevail in this city, in this day and age, right now? What does it mean for us to be a victorious people? The first thing we talked about is we have to do it with each other. None of us are strong enough to win on our own. We need each other. So we're going to walk in life with one another. Last week, we talked about that we will only be able to prevail against the forces coming against us when we have access to the power that is greater than any force that comes against us, which means we have to learn how to live in the rhythm of walking with the Holy Spirit, being full of the Holy Spirit, walking step in step with Him, regardless of what comes. You know, and today what we're going to talk about is how do we stay engaged with God in the middle of suffering? How do we stay engaged with God when there's hard things going on in our life? When we're in a trial? When bad news seems to be coming at every conversation? When we feel like we're just hit by wave and wave of disappointment because of what is going on in life? you're like, what on earth? How do we stay engaged with God in that? Now, if there's anybody in the scriptures who, who went through some hard things, we could all agree that it was Paul. Paul went through some stuff in his day. And as I said, the, the chapters we're walking through these, this 20 through 28 today, the, the summary I'm giving of those chapters, let me just tell you about some of the things that happened to Paul during these chapters. It's pretty wild. So Paul is 
in Jeru- he's, he's fleeing the town that he's been in, and he's saying goodbye to the leaders in Ephesus. So he's been traveling around, planting churches, seeing the gospel go forward, and he has to flee yet another town because there's a plot to assassinate him. So he's got to get out of town. That, that sounds like a stressful situation to be in. So he heads up to Jerusalem, which is a dangerous place for him to be because he's been spreading the way of Jesus. And he says, you know what? I want to go to the temple. I want to follow the customs. Paul was a Jew, so he, he's like, I want to follow the customs of my people, and I want to worship God at the temple. So he does everything right. There were certain rules for how he had to be cleansed and what he had to do, and he did every single step right so that the people could hold nothing against him. But what happens? In these chapters, the first thing that happens is Paul gets captured by an angry mob at the temple. So even though he did everything right, it didn't work out. He's then arrested and detained by the Roman leaders because the mob is causing a scene. He barely escapes getting scourged, which basically means getting the tar whooped out of you. He barely escapes that. He then escapes yet another assassination attempt. And for his reward for all that is he gets to spend two years in prison for a crime that no one can seem to pin down. What did he actually do? He went to Jerusalem, did the right things, walked into the temple, obeyed all the rules. People got ticked off. He got arrested and he spends two years in prison. He then has to go stand trial before multiple officials, none of which can determine what he did wrong or why they should have him in prison or if they should release him. So what do they do? They send him to Rome. Say, Caesar's going to take this one up. Caesar's going to determine what happens to you. Still, no one's quite sure what Paul's crime is. It's talking about Jesus is what it is, but that that's... Okay. Um, while Paul is being shipped to Rome, he, the boat he's on is shipwrecked. And when he gets to shore, he's making a fire because there was about 300 other people that were shipwrecked with him and he's making a fire and he reaches down to grab some wood and a viper latches onto his hand. I mean, you can just feel the frustration that was probably going through Paul. It says he shook it off. I'm like, I would love to see his face when he shook it off. Be like, are you kidding me? I'm like shipwrecked and I'm trying to make a fire for these morons who wouldn't listen to me because I told them it was going to shipwreck if we did this. And then it did. And now I'm making them a fire and now I'm bitten by a snake. After about three months of being on that island, he then makes his way to Rome so that he can sit in house arrest for the next few years, awaiting to talk to Caesar. Paul went through some stuff. Paul went through some hardships in his life. You know, but he wasn't afraid to talk about it. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Paul's like giving some of his qualifications for, for why people should listen to him and why he's like qualified to do what he does. He doesn't like to do this, but, which is what we'll see. But in verse 23, he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind for, for talking like this. I am even more of a servant of Christ. I have worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day at open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. I have been in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. It feels like Paul has become Dr. Seuss. (laughs) I have labored and toiled and I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. When Paul wrote this, when he was describing what he had been through, he had been in doing what he was doing for about 20 years. He would live another 11 to 12 years. So like two-thirds through... (laughs) Like him trying to follow Jesus, he had already gone through all this. Pretty tough stuff. Oh, and by the way, the last like 10, 11 years would be Paul spending most of that time in prison or in house arrest, being isolated from believers, writing them letters, occasionally getting visitors, and ultimately what would happen is he'd get executed for talking about Jesus. So it's kind of an understatement to say Paul went through some stuff. Yet after he gives that Dr. Seuss speech on all the stuff that he'd been through, he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations that he had received. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, and in all difficulty. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. I find the truth is that unlike Paul, we don't love talking about suffering. It's not something that that gets us excited. 
For some of us, it's because we don't want to feel like we're complaining. So we, don't, we just don't talk about the hard things in our lives. You know, for others, we don't talk about the hard things, the sufferings that we're going through. Because we have this lie running through our head that if I'm going through hard things, it's because God's not with me or God's not for me. You know, I found in at least our Western culture, when we do bring up something that's hard, we tend to minimize what it's really doing on the inside to us. We tend to dial it down and pretend like it's not that big of a deal. We'll label almost anything a first world problem if it helps deflect what we're really feeling. Or we'll say things that are even more ridiculous, like, well, at least I'm not starving in Africa, which I'm like, it's so ridiculous. I mean, most of us haven't even been to Africa. You don't even know what it's like. I'm like, it's, but we, the point is that we're minimizing the thing that is really happening inside of us because we don't like talking about suffering. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to talk about the hard that's happening in our lives. See, there's one commonality that happens in all types of suffering. And one commonality that happens is that when it's happening to us, we have a tendency to pull away. We have a tendency, whether it's to pull away from people or whether it's to pull away from the thing that's hard. We want to isolate or insulate. Isolate from people or insulate ourselves from what is hard. Suffering comes in different forms. There's there's suffering that comes because we live in a fallen and broken world. The result of sin has left the world broken. And so therefore, there's hard things that happen in life. There's pain that happens in life. There's sickness that happens in life. And it causes suffering in our lives. And those things will only be wiped away when Jesus restores all things back to God's original intent when he returns. But until then, we will face those kind of sufferings as a result of living in a fallen world. There's sufferings that happen because we make stupid choices. We do something... We sin, we make a bad decision, and the result of it, it is negative consequences. And we have to live with those negative consequences for either a short season or a long season that causes us pain and hardship because of choices that we make on our own. There's there's suffering that comes from spiritual warfare. The reality is is there is a very real enemy. The devil is real. Demonic forces are real. And their sole purpose is to steal from you, to kill you, and destroy you. And so what they will do is they will attack your life. They will attack your life so that they erode away the trust that you have in God and eventually want to turn your back on Him. They will come at you at night when you are defenseless and they will flood your dreams They will seek to come after you with night terrors, with nightmares that make you want to trust, distrust. Is God really with me? When I can't fight for myself, is God for me? And the sole purpose of that spiritual warfare is to get you to turn your back on God. And lastly, there is suffering that takes place when we stand up for the gospel. When we stand up for Jesus. You know, I don't know anybody 
here that's been imprisoned, like Paul was for standing up for the gospel, our, our persecution can look a little different given the context of where we live, but it still comes. You get passed over, you, you get ignored, relationships are harder to form. See, it's that commonality I'm talking about. When those kind of things happen, the tendency for us is to either isolate from people or to insulate ourselves from pain. We're a pain-avoidant people. Again, remember what Jesus said in John and Luke chapter 21? He said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. Your hearts will get overrun. When hard things, when suffering is happening in our lives, when there's difficulties that we're facing, it's our hearts that start to pull us in another direction. And our hearts, what keep us from staying engaged with God, because we either insulate from the hard or we start to isolate from people. That's why Jesus is saying, hey, be careful or your hearts will, 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 will go astray. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. We've got to just keep watch over our heart. We've got to pay attention when things are hard. We've got to pay attention. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves numbing. When we start to to do things and fall into patterns that, that numb us, it not just numbs us from the pain that we're feeling, it can numb us from the joy that God, God's, called, God, God's got for us. It, it has an effect both ways. How, so how do we... All right, so how do we take this from being a platitude that I'm talking about to being something that's practical? Okay, you walked in here today, and I have no doubt there are many who walked in here today with some sort of suffering that you're going through. It's not going to be the same for everybody. But you walked in with something, some hardship, some trial that you're facing. So I've, I've been where you are, where you're sitting and saying, all right, preacher man, <laughs> like make this real. Like, what does it actually mean for my life? Can you help me here? Because this thing I'm walking through is going to be still here when, when you're done in X number of minutes. I'm not going to tell you how long I got left. But the thing that you're walking through is real. It's still going to be here. So, how, so what does it mean? How do we do this? How do we stay engaged with God in our suffering? How did Paul do it? You know, I, I think what, what Paul would tell us to do is, hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus. You know, Paul even said that in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. What Paul learned to do in the middle of his suffering is from learning what Jesus did in his suffering. So let's look at what Jesus did. What did Jesus do when he was suffering? In Matthew chapter 26 This is right before Jesus is about to die. He's had the Last Supper with his followers. 
and they leave, and it says, Then Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So he went a little bit further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them all asleep. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, then your will be done. And he came again and he found them asleep for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away again. And a third time he prayed, saying the same words. What did Jesus do in the middle of suffering right from the start? Bear in mind, this is the Son of God we're talking about. Going through suffering, just like us. What did he do? He invited people in, and he didn't hide. He invited people in. He told his friends, hey guys, I'm in a hard spot. I'm really suffering. You know, we read this and think, all right, yeah, he's, he's about to die, but we've got the perspective of like, just like a few pages later, he's, he's going to rise. You know, but he was sorrowful to the point of death. This is so excruciating that I don't know what I'm going to do. Be with me. Help me. Show up for me. Sit with me. The temptation for some of us right now is to not focus on what Jesus did, though, is to focus on what the disciples did. For some of you, you're sitting here thinking right now, see, see this is why I don't do it, though, because look what they did to him. They weren't there for him. They didn't show up for him. That's why I don't let people in. You have one responsibility. It's to control what you do, not what other people are going to do. You're called to follow Jesus. Jesus, even when his friends didn't show up the way that he needed to, he brought them in. Because Jesus knew that he couldn't do life alone. He couldn't do it alone. He needed people to be with him. Even when they showed up and they didn't do it the right way, he still chose to be with people. He still chose to give himself and to invite them into the hard that he was going through. Now, I'll be honest. This is, of all the things I'm talking about, this is the hardest one for me. I don't like doing this. I like to be the person that um, is not a burden. 
I don't want to be a burden to people. So I, I want to be the one that helps. I want to be the strong one. I want to be the one that people rely on. I'm also really scared of letting people in. Why? Because I've got some examples from my past where I let people in and it didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. And so rather than letting people in and choosing to follow the model of Jesus and saying, you know what, when I'm going through hard things, I've got to choose to risk and let people in. We live off our past examples and we frame everybody based on one experience that we had. They're going to be just like they were. And so we end up suffering alone rather than being surrounded in the middle of our suffering. The truth is, is that Jesus prayed and it didn't, his suffering didn't go away. He, he died. He was brutally crucified shortly after this. But he didn't have to suffer alone because he brought people in. Like, really, if you're suffering today, please don't do it alone. Tell somebody what is going on in your world. You are not, I love you, and you are not strong enough to do this alone. What you're facing will be stronger than you if you don't let people be in it with you. That's why Jesus brought people in. Risk the vulnerability. Risk it. Because God doesn't want you to do this alone. What else did Jesus do? He brought his friends in, but he was also really honest with God. Emotionally honest with God. And why, why do I say emotionally honest with God, not just with our, our words? But what Jesus did is he brought him his whole self into this moment. He didn't pray some fake prayer, being like, I'm excited about what you have for me, Lord. This is going to be so great. No, I mean, he, he cried out, saying, let there be another way. And he kept going back and saying, no, let there be another way. Third time, no, let there be another way. I don't want to do this. I will, and we'll get to that, but I don't want to. You've got to, there's got to be another way here, God. It was such, it was so intense. His like in crying out to God, that it tells us that Jesus sweat blood. And this is not like some exaggeration to make the story look cooler. Like this is a legitimate medical condition, which I read about, and I've already tried to pronounce one really hard word in this message, and so I'm not going to do this one. But it's a legitimate medical condition. It's pretty rare. But, but what happens is that the sweat glands, which have blood vessels around them, they constrict, they dilate, they rupture, and it, the blood mixes in with the sweat. It's very light. It's not like, 
you cut your finger in drops of blood. It's just like blood-tinged sweat. But it's rare when it happens because it only happens under extreme stress and extreme anguish. Jesus, in his prayer, was not just like, if you could do this, that'd be great. Thanks. It's like, God, please. I don't want this. How often are you that honest with God? With the pain that you're experiencing, with the pain that you have experienced in the past, have you gotten real with God? Have you been honest with Him about what you've walked through and how it made you feel? Have you been honest about your questions, your concerns? The reality is is that God is not afraid of what you have to say to him. And you only find that out when you actually do it. When you say, God, I don't understand why you did this. In fact, I'm kind of ticked off that you did do this or that you haven't stopped this or this hasn't changed. Why does it matter that we do this? You may be sitting there thinking, okay, what... Why does it even matter, Chris, that I bring this up with God? Because God, ultimately what he wants from you is a real relationship. He doesn't want fake you giving the fake answers that you think he wants. He wants real relationship with you. And I find for myself, the thing that's holding me back from being honest with God is not God. It's me. It is me being having a wrong view of what God is like. So therefore, I don't know how to approach him. Let's say you, you had a parent who was just distant. Just felt like they were distant from you. You, you weren't sure if they really ever wanted to like talk to you or be with you. Because there was just some distance there. So that has now been overlaid on how you see God. So how you approach God in prayer, especially when you're going through hard things, is you're not sure that God actually wants to be there with you. And it completely shapes the view that you see him as. Or maybe it wasn't distance that you experienced. It was anger. It was anger And and either an authority, a coach, a parent, there was anger, defensiveness, and how they lived and when you brought things up. And so now the way that you approach God is you walk on eggshells. And you're very calculated and careful in what you say to him and the prayers that you pray. They're not emotionally honest and real. They're very crafted. And, and structured in a way that I have to make sure I say the right thing. Otherwise, I don't want to upset him. The reality is, is we let our overlays of how we've experienced people in the past dictate our view of God. And it, approach, and it changes how we actually engage with him. Not from a real relationship, but from how we think we're supposed to show up and, and what's going to make him the happiest. That's called religion. God doesn't want that from us. He wants a real relationship with us. 
I found the way that I see that thing broken down in my life is in two ways. One, I daily spend time reading the scriptures. If you will daily read the scriptures, you'll get a clearer view of who God is. But two, just pro tip, sign up for freedom prayer. For those of you that don't know what freedom prayer is, go to our website and read about freedom prayer and watch the testimony video that's on our website about freedom prayer. But what I, I try to go through freedom prayer twice a year is my aim. You know, and Krishna and Shankari are so gracious when they lead me through it. Like, it is amazing. But what I do is when I go through it, I'm saying, God, is there any way in which I'm not seeing you rightly that I need to have my mind rewired so that my relationship with you is a little more whole and a little more real. And that's what I'm going for. God, would you rewrite what is off in me so that I can see you rightly? Because I want to see you rightly. Because I want to know you. And I know you want to be with me. So we've got to be honest with God. And last thing that we see Jesus doing before he goes and he's crucified. The reason he's able to pray, not my will, but your will, is because the love of God is what colored his perspective of the future. You ever notice that when you're in the middle of something hard or you're in the middle of something suffering related, you're, you're thinking, this is going to last forever. This is just the way it is. This is just my life. You actually begin to anticipate more hard. When we let the love of God color our perspective of the future, what it does is it gives us a different view what the future will be like. It doesn't eliminate the heart. Even when the love of God colors our perspective, it recognizes that hard will come. It just means that the hard won't define us. That the love of God will never leave us, no matter what the heart is, no matter how difficult try to make this point practical even further. You know, when I was a teenager, I did not want God at all. Um, my parents loved Jesus, and they raised me to love Jesus, but I just was like, I'm out. I spent a lot of time partying, doing drugs, drinking, and one night, I was at a party, and decided to show up at that party and they then phone called my parents to let me know that they were there with me and so my mom and dad came and had to drive me home from said party needless to say I was in just a little bit of trouble definitely got grounded but here's what honestly what they did makes me emotional because it changed me forever changed me forever. Not just in my relationship with them, but how I live. 
I was grounded for a month. When I got home, when I got out of school, come straight home. No going out at night with friends, which was not a bad idea. No doing anything. What you would think would maybe happen is I would sit in my room, I would sulk, and I would get ticked off at my parents for not letting me be out and be the fun, exciting teenager that I thought I was being. No, but what they did is they took every night of that month-long grounding and spent intentional time with me. We went to movies. They took me out to dinner. We went to Rangers baseball games. We played board games. By the end of the month, I didn't want to go out with my friends anymore. Like, they loved me. Even though I was going through a hard thing, that was my own decision. My own decision led me into the suffering that I was experiencing. But they loved me so much, even in the middle of my suffering, that it changed how I lived. Here's how it's changed me now. As an adult, I, I want to be with my parents because of how they've loved me. Regardless of what's going on in my life, I want to be near them because they've loved me in good and they've loved me when I was an idiot. As a parent, my kids are not idiots like I am. I have three teenagers and they're so, so much better than me in, in every way. But it's, they still go through hard. And it shifted how I say, you know what? They still may make choices that I don't like. I'm not going to win every battle that I have as a parent. But I'm going to let love be the thing that I give them so that the banner over their lives is that they are loved. Because what shapes their future then, the perspective they then have a future, is one that no matter what I go through, I'm loved. God wants you to hear today that no matter what you go through, you were loved. No matter what you're experiencing, He loves you. He has not left you, and He will not leave you. No matter the the sickness that has come. He loves you and he's not leaving you. The anxiety that seems to hit you, the depression that feels like it won't go away, the relationship you wonder if it's ever going to be restored, the suicidal thoughts that come out of nowhere, when they come, he loves you and you're not alone. He wants to be with you. And he wants you to know that his love is never going to leave you. He's going to stay. He's going to keep showing up. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes 
on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, his suffering, his hardship, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him today. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.